It happened when I was in medical school and I'll never forget going up to the NICU and seeing him and feeling absolutely helpless that we had nothing to help um, his brain recover or to help him learn how to feed or do anything. From a motor skill standpoint, it was up to the brain to do it itself. And that's pretty frightening from, from, from an MD standpoint or any care provider, nurse, we all wanna help babies. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. It's the place where we dive into the origins of the next big things and explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina, and in some cases, all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, Dr. Jesse Goodwin, who is the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC. Good morning, Dr. Jesse. Good morning. We've got two guests on the docket today. Tell me a little bit about them and why you chose them for this episode. Oh, I think this episode is really exciting because uh, I think it shows the power of cl uh, collaboration. So, um, you know, it really speaks to what happens when you have a clinical pain point and aren't necessarily sure that you have the technical skills to solve it yourself and how do you reach out and find someone who can be a fantastic partner to really move mountains and make meaningful impact um, on patients. Well, it's exciting. MUSC is full of talented people, so it's always great when they get together. So let's dive right in. All right, today we're talking about strong babies, and we've got two guests, Dr. Bashar Badrin and Dr. Dorothea Jenkins. Welcome to the MUSC podcast studio. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Dr. Jenkins, let's start with you. Um, this I was doing a little prep work for this episode, very interesting topic, and I'd like to hear a little bit of, of the background, maybe what, what got you interested in this subject, and if you could maybe talk a little bit about Baby Strong. So we have been doing research in babies' brain injuries for a long time, trying to help neuroprotect, but also help them recover from brain injury. And one of the things we see babies do after they've had brain injury is that they can't master motor skills very well. And that manifests really early as feeding delays because they have to ma master this very complex coordinated sequence of motor movements, suck, swallow, breathe, to be able to feed from a bottle or from the breast to be able to go home. So a lot of our preterm babies and babies who've had birth asphyxia end up with feeding delays and we have to put G-tubes in them. So gastrostomy tubes are direct feeding tubes that allow us to feed the, the stomach. And that's a surgical procedure and it kind of labels the baby as, as having a developmental problem. So that affects how parents and everybody sees the baby's development. And it has a really um, overall, although it provides nutrition, a, a negative impact. So we, um, in this whole realm of trying to improve ba outcomes for babies, um, got very interested in improving that motor skill. And um, Baby Strong arose because I went to go hear a lecture by Dr. Badran on how he was refining um, the parameters for transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation. We can't do implanted things in babies, but he was pursuing something that's non-invasive and looked like it might help babies. Dr. Badran, talk to us a little bit about when you first encountered this idea, what you thought and how you thought you could interface with it. Uh, well, it's a funny story. I first met Dr. Jenkins after I gave a lecture, and she grabbed me. She's like, hey, we have to do this in babies. And I'm like, sounds good to me. You know, that was like the first time that we met. And I really didn't know much about Dr. Jenkins' work, but I knew about um, what it takes to create a meaningful impact in the clinic. And to do that, you need 
uh, passionate, dedicated, amazing clinician. And Dr. Jenkins you really fit the bill on all those marks. So for me, it was clearly a no-brainer to kind of start moving that into kind of this direction. Some may say it's the hardest direction to go to. You know, you may want to start in in adults and kind of a a lower risk population rather than straight into uh, the neonatal uh, unit in the children's hospital with uh, babies that are two months old. Um, But we we picked it and and we went for it and, and we're lucky enough that it kind of worked out. But the technology is really safe, which is advantageous in this case, and it's non-invasive. So the relative risk profile uh, was not that high. Um, so it made sense. And I think that, you know, particularly in a state like South Carolina, where we have so many preterm births, that, you know, there really wasn't a treatment other than a, a G-tube for these infants. So to be able to tackle something so important in a state where it's so prevalent, um, I, I think just like when I think about it, it has such the capacity for a profound impact, uh, even just locally, if we just look around at our own, you know, patient population. And then, you know, you can get excited when you extrapolate that out to, to all of the unmet needs sort of globally, um, you know, because if we're struggling here in a first world country, imagine what that looks like as we sort of expand beyond our own borders. So I think it's really exciting work. Um, and I agree that I think that at the core of it has to be really passionate champions who are really willing to, to push it ahead. And we have to give credit to our IRB and our research infrastructure because they actually supported our application. And as Bashar said, to have a first in infants use is really um, something. And MUSC has that. And we worked with the IRB. I used to be IRB um, co-chair. So we um, we had discussions and we we worked through any of the issues that they had for safety. And we were able to do this study. Um, so that was a, that's a real coup. Um, a lot of other IRBs might have had more difficulty. Well, let's set the stage a little bit. Um, like you guys were talking about, um, there's a lot of, of preterm babies uh, in our state. And, and for, for the most part, I think uh, neonatal health care is, is so good. You know, I know lots of people who've had preterm babies, and they're, they're fine. But there are issues that you have discovered, and you're trying to make them better. Let's talk about that. Get, kind of give me a case study on what this is and how you deal with it. So preterm babies who develop outside the womb, as Jesse was talking about, have a very different brain structure than babies who develop um, for full term inside the womb. And sometimes that brain structure means that they get inflammation at different points and their white matter tracts are not the same. So those circuits are what are important for motor activation and motor learning. And those white matter circuits, we can may not even be shown to be damaged by conventional MRI, but we can pick it up with quantitative diffusion measures and show that they have had injury. So taking that global concept of a baby who's not feeding appropriately probably has some degree of brain injury that may be subtle and hard to pick up um, by conventional mechanisms, and then be able to take that motor skill and kind of boost that neuroplasticity of that circuit. 
so that it becomes more efficient and that the synapses get, instead of trying to find the right um, uh, coordination every time, it becomes a really formed um, circuit with good synaptic stability. So that's what we took. And, and one of the, you know, Bashar's comments about well, why aren't we doing this first in adults, et cetera, I kept maintaining babies are the perfect subject. We have so much neuroplasticity going on already. We're going to harness that even more. And he, you know, okay, he didn't know it was going to work, but I just knew it was going to work because from the standpoint of boost in neuroplasticity, I just didn't know how many babies it was going to help, really. I, the background for neuroplasticity is strong after injury, especially in babies. So I knew we had the ideal population, even though it remained to be proven. What are some of the um, predispositions that you know women may have that, that may indicate that not only are they going to deliver preterm, which we know is a, is a challenge, but that they might end up with a baby who you know is failing to thrive because they're not feeding? Um, I think that you found some clinical correlations on that. We do. And some of the classic ones are infection or inflammation in the womb, which is called chorio, um, uh, chorioamnionitis. And those, whether it's actual a true infection or inflammation, um, it doesn't matter. The baby's brain responds to that. We also know that preeclampsia leads to preterm delivery, and anytime you have preterm delivery, especially very preterm, those babies have more a chance to have white matter injury, and then infants and diabetic mothers. And this is a big problem for us in this southern belt because we have so much um, either type 1 or type 2 diabetes, and um, that baby is subjected to higher glucose levels throughout pregnancy, and glucose is a pro-oxidant, and pro-oxidants can can obviously injure developing white matter. I'm curious um, what it's like to try to consent these parents to participate um, and what your experience has been with that. And and I can share that, you know, my nephew was born at 27 weeks, um, you know, and he was like the size of like your palm at the time. And, um, you know, everyone, you know, was so nervous about it that the idea of like participating in a clinical trial, I, I can imagine for families who are dealing with sort of the stress of, of really early preterm birth and uh, having a baby that's in, you know, the NICU and all of the ancillary stresses that come with that might be a little hesitant to enroll. Um, so I'm curious as to how those conversations have gone and, and how you've maybe approached the conversations to get people more at ease with participating. So the, the babies that we enroll in this study are older, mm -hmm. so they're closer to full term, and they actually should be going home. So the parents are really motivated in many cases to avoid a G-tube. They don't want it. They want their baby to feed normally. And when, um, when I approach them and I say this is vagus nerve stimulation, you know, it may be, it's an indirect form of brain stimulation, right? And um, I had absolutely no problem we got a consent rate over 90%. We had a few parents who were not interested. But, but part of it is the uh, fact that it's non-invasive and that we could actually show them what it felt like. 
and um, we could put the device on them and show them. So all of those things help, and by that time they have a fair amount of trust built up. If there's no trust between the, the NICU team and the parents, um, you know, those parents are not going to consent. But, um, but they, they trust us as care providers, they trust us as researchers, and they trust that we're interested in their baby's best possible outcome. So we, we really had very few um, refusals of consent. Yeah. I think one of the things also to add is what makes the uh, evidence even stronger is that these babies have been trying to feed on a bottle in the hospital for months. The parents are in the hospital daily. It's very burdensome. And they're scheduled to get uh, what's called a gastrostomy tube, so a surgery that puts a tube into uh, the gut so that the mother can feed the child at home because it's time to move the baby home out of the hospital. So imagine some uh, rock star clinical team comes up to you and says, we have something that's really safe that may help you avoid a surgical implantation of a G-tube and a future explantation. Um, are you willing to try it? And so you can understand the problem here we're trying to solve is not only get babies to feed faster and better and stronger, but also we're trying to reduce the cost burden on the payer for reduction of gastrostomy tube surgery implantations. Um, and we're also trying to get them home without the tube uh, to avoid all of the problems with the tube itself. So it's kind of a, a double win. Not only is it uh, potentially very promising and something that we want to provide for the patients, but it solves a, a serious unmet need there, um, which um, if you look at the babies that we were treating in the first clinical trial and our amazing response rates, those babies were already on the calendar for a surgery. So they were already ready to go. Um, and then we were able to convert those from getting a surgery guaranteed to uh, about a 50% chance of a surgery. So we already cut that in half. And we think that if we started earlier, it may be even a better solution. So let's talk about a personal connection. This is an intense kind of a, uh, subject matter. And so what drew you to this? Was there anything personal? Well, my nephew um, had uh, birth asphyxia and at 36 weeks, and he ended up with really severe cerebral palsy. So that's um, probably my motivation for working in trying to help babies with brain injury. Um, I, it happened when I was in medical school, and I'll never forget going up to the NICU and seeing him and feeling absolutely helpless that we had nothing to help um, his brain recover or to help him learn how to feed or do anything from a motor skill standpoint. It was up to the brain to do it itself. And that's pretty frightening from, from, from an MD standpoint or any care provider, nurse. We all want to help babies and we want to help them learn and become the best they can possibly be. So that's, that was, that's probably my personal motivation for, for that. But, um, you know, every parent that I had to send home or just talk about G-Tube about, you would just see their face fall. And that was, and that's heartbreaking. Um, the fact that they start to realize my baby's not going to be normal, and that is a—it's a terrible burden as a parent to have. Um, I know they're still going to go home and worry about it. Like with uh, once you have a preterm baby, you're going to worry about that. You're going to wa watch development like a hawk, but to already be have that known by the time you leave, it's just—it's disheartening. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I find it so fascinating and sort of. A 
appealing. As I mentioned, you know, my nephew was born very early. Um, he also had asphyxia as they moved him from the hospital where my sister was because she was ill, which is why they did deliver him. Um, and he ended up with very mild. We were very fortunate that it was mild uh, cerebral palsy. But when they brought him home around 40 weeks, my sister was still out of state in the hospital. And so I came home from college to, to care for him. And we had to feed him every three hours. And it was suck, suck. And then pull the bottle out while he gag, and then put. And he wasn't on a G tube, but like that was for a whole summer, every three hours. And it took like 30 minutes to feed at a time because he could only like, because he couldn't inhale at the same time. So it would suck, suck, pull out this little tiny bottle, and then watch him gag and gasp for air. Um, and so I think about that and how fortunate we were that he didn't come home, you know, on a on a G tube that we were able to bring him home and bottle feed. But how. Um, labor intensive it was um, for the whole entire family. I mean, it really took the whole family coming in to support it that just from a very personal standpoint, I think that the impact that this could have on families that, you know, that that could solve this for them, you know. And, and, it, and a lot of our families, especially in the South with, with the preterm rate, they don't have the resources no. for that kind of support. So no. they, they're, they're working multiple jobs and they've got multiple kids and it's, it's you know, any kid who is yeah. developmentally challenged um, needs more support. And so anything we can do to make it easier for yeah. that family is, is um, going to be a, a huge benefit to the baby um, and the family. Well, let's talk about the mechanics here. Uh, we've kind of set the stage for what is happening and the, the change in the babies that enable them to, to feed better. But, but I want to know what, what's actually happening here. Um, you've, you've talked a little bit about some stimulation techniques and whatnot. Can you unpack the, the mechanics of that? How does it actually yeah. work? So Baby Strong is, I think, the kind of the fourth biggest advancement in feeding technology I think in the in the planet, the first was ceramic baby bottles. So if you go to uh, look at the uh, sites at different archaeological digs, you can find baby bottles that are made out of ceramics. And then the next biggest innovation was glass baby bottles, where you can feed babies at home using a, a glass solution. And then plastics. So a big advancement in baby bottles was plastics and different nipples. And Baby Strong is, I think, the fourth biggest advancement in that kind of history of baby bottles technology. And it involves two different um, things. The first is a baby bottle that is administering um, uh, nutrition to the baby. And at the same time that the baby is sucking on the bottle and intaking uh, nutrients, we're delivering stimulation um, to the auricular branch of the vagus nerve, which innervates the human ears. So. We time the stimulation when the baby is sucking on a bottle. And that pairing of electrical stimulation at the same time of sucking on a bottle uh, boosts your ability to learn that motor ability. So it helps learn how to suck on a bottle faster. It doesn't make the baby suck. It reinforces that behavior and makes it stick. So it's motor learning. It's accelerating motor learning. And we know that that's how it works because all of the early evidence, not only in, in, in adults, but also in, in preclinical animal models, shows that when you stimulate this nerve, you get a boost in norepinephrine, which is a neurochemical in the brain that accelerates uh, neuroplasticity. So when you increase the concentration of norepinephrine in the brain, you create a more plastic environment. Plastic means it's more malleable, it's more adaptive, 
Um, and that's what we're taking advantage of. So stimulation of that part of the ear increases norepinephrine, which when paired with sucking on a bottle, accelerates motor learning. You know, one of the other things I wanted to mention is that safety is really important. And we know now that it's safe because we've delivered 550 different sessions with these babies. And we have neuroimaging that shows improvement with it, not any um, decrements or, or problems with it. But at the time, we didn't really know if it was safe in babies. So that had to be explained to parents. And that was a big part of, of what we did during that first trial is show safety. So it's nice to show efficacy, but safety first. Bashar, was there, from a technical standpoint, you know, the, the challenge of dealing with, with baby ears? You know, can you speak a little bit about sort of what it was like to, to have to downsize, uh, quite literally, yeah. your approach? Yeah, so, you know, something we take for granted every day is like when we put on headphones or AirPods or any type of in-ear apparatus that's there to as an assistance device. Um, there's a lot of human ergonomics that goes into creating a good fitting headphone. And even the biggest companies can't make the perfect headphone for everyone. That's why they give you those little rubber things that you have to fit. And I bet one of us here in this room, none of those fit for, right? I'm a medium. I feel like mine are different, both ears even, you know? Exactly, <laughs> right? So, okay, so that's the big picture. Ears are already hard to work with and take a lot of money and research on a human ergonomics um, kind of perspective to then come up with a design to be able to reliably fit in most people's ears, right? Maybe not yours, but right. in most people's. <laughs> and so um, scaling down uh, the human ear to a baby doesn't really work proportionally. Um, and so we have to now consider creating electronics that can attach to a newborn's ear on a millimeter level rather than a centimeter level. So we're talking about like a 10x miniaturization of some components. So we went through a you know pretty serious rapid prototyping um, procedure where we you know me and Dr. Jenkins went through probably four or five different prototypes, including me um, like hand chiseling our own electronics to see if they would fit. Right? We even did some some specific ear mold casting to see if we can capture the fit. Um, we've used hydrogel electrodes and clamps and, and spring clips. And I remember we were using a water jet cutting machine that I would have made in New York City, and then they would ship it to us. And these miniature stimulation electrodes were actually pretty good for with, what they with were. With a spring. Yeah, with a spring. Mm -hmm. It was like the most simple solution was almost always the best, but um, in small scales, you know, at scale, the most simple solutions may not be the best. You know, there were still some technical challenges. So now I think we're at a point where we've gotten pretty nice electrodes that we like that are adhesive and that can fit, um, and the manufacturing is kind of scaled up. As we get more resources, then we can afford different things that are much better. But at an early stage when you're limited in resources and we're doing all the work ourselves, um, it can be quite a challenge. And, and babies don't do what you tell them. So they're not going to sit there and be still and quiet like an adult would be when you clip this on their ears. So we had a lot of trouble. That's one of the things we had to do was, you know, a baby burping or, you know, crying, it's going to fall off. So we had tape and we did all kinds of stuff. And Bashar's most successful one is the, is the black carbon, which was um, conductive. 
and we, he was able to mold in a in a better fashion. So that's the one we ended up using for most of the yeah. the babies. I kind of love the the visual that I get like listening to you describe sort of the history and all the iterations that it took to get to where you are now because I do think that there's something almost romantic about the idea of inventors like being like in their garage and you know rolling up their sleeves and you know sort of how that comes about and I think it it really does happen that way in a lot of cases and um, the other reason I like it is because I often have uh, individuals who want to come and they have an idea for something but they're really afraid to try the quick and dirty method right and it's like they really want a polished solution before they roll it out and it's like well you don't even know if the polished solution is going to work so you know sometimes the best approach is just to like you know, try a bunch of things, try a bunch of springs, try, you know, all of this stuff before you get to that end laser cut, you know, elect, you know, but that's not where you started. Right? No, and no. So, Spe- speaker wire and yeah. um, black and carbon. And like it's yeah. a yeah. great visual example of right. like, you know, Bashar and his lab, this leaves from <laughs> that, and, yeah. you know. <laughs> you know, like a lot of the day-to-day components that we run into have all the same components that you need for any type of device. So like the speaker wire, it's really just copper enclosed in a, like a plastic insulative material, right? So then if you strip away the plastic insulative material, now we have a wire, right? And so then you're starting to kind of work on really rapid prototypes, so failing fast. Yeah. The faster you fail, the faster you could get to the next solution. And you know, you have to be okay with failing, and we know we're gonna fail. And so oftentimes we're uh, quickly failing, I'll get a text from Doe, this thing sucks, you know? <laughs> I'm like, great, like, let's fix it, right? Or this broke or, or whatever. And then we quickly iterate to the point where uh, we're, we're able to do it. And, so, and it is frustrating to fail on babies. So you don't want to, f- I didn't want to fail a single session. I didn't want to have poor contact the whole session. So, you know, I was driving Bashar pretty hard um, because I didn't think I could waste a session um, with this baby. You know, I, I didn't know when is the final click point for the motor skill. I know it's a learning process, but which we're in there. If I miss a day, is that going to disrupt it? So it was. There was an urgency, and and yes, we worked really hard back and forth for a lot of this. Yeah, it is kind of a conundrum, right, of wanting to be able to iterate and do rapid designs, but also knowing that you have a very finite window uh, with each patient in terms of the number of sessions that you're going to be able to do with them. So what everyone sees is the end product, right? And so leading up to that, um, I spent several years with amazing people at the Department of Psychiatry working on a series of different studies that really validated what we were doing on a neuroscience level. And really the principle here is, does stimulation in nerves in the ear activate the brain and modulate the body? And so we set up a series of experiments where um, we would um, stimulate um, using different electrical parameters, so different frequencies, different pulse widths, and measured autonomics. And the Autonomics means heart rate, respiration, skin conductance. And the question there is, if we're stimulating the ear and it's activating the nerve that we think that it's supposed to activate, well, then we'll be able to detect that activation by measuring heart rate because the nerve connects to the heart. And whenever the nerve is active, it releases acetylcholine on the cardiac fibers and it slows heart rate. That was the hypothesis. We're stimulating this nerve that it is involved in the heart, and when we stimulate the nerve, we should see a measurable reduction in heart rate based on this cholinergic synapse. And, and we didn't really know if it would work going into it. And we showed that as you increase the frequency and increase the pulse width and change the parameters, that you start to get a robust slowing of the heart rate. 
And by robust, I don't mean, you know, 50 points, right? It's not unsafe. It's a clear biomarker of activation that's about four to six beats per minute. So if you come in at a resting heart rate of 60, we're bringing you down to about 52 to 54. And then within about 30 seconds, it recovers. And so after we were the first really to demonstrate that stimulation does that, we were then able to use it in babies to determine if we're in the circuit or not. Because babies can't talk, they can't tell you that they feel it, and you're kind of blindly delivering stimulation to a nerve. So it's nice to look up at the monitor and say, oh, we're in or we're not in, right? And so that's kind of what we started to do. We started that study in like 2016, um, and we started the first baby work around 2018, right? 2017, yeah. Where are you at in terms of you know your testing and development now? I think you've mentioned 550 some odd sessions. Um, so can you give us a little bit of a, a description in terms of where you're at and validating this, and then what comes next? You know, before this becomes a full blown product that we can prescribe. So we um, enrolled 35 babies, and we treated them with um, either once or twice daily stimulation paired with feeding. And we have really good data um, both on both um, frequencies of, of, of stimulation that we can get about 50% of those babies, or a little bit more, to full feeds, and there's a dose response. So what we learned from those studies, from those 550 sessions, is that babies who get twice a day get there faster. So the median days of a response were eight days compared to 15 days if you got once daily. We didn't really change the response rate. So we had safety. We had some degree measure of efficacy in that the babies who were going to get G-tubes, 50% of them didn't. And we had a wealth of experience with the, the product and what we needed to do. And um, the, the, the cool thing about that work is that we also got neuroimaging. And one of the key aspects of neuroimaging was, first of all, let's make sure we don't hurt anything, which we didn't. But is there a difference in the babies who did get to full feeds and the babies who didn't in their either starting brain injury or how they responded with that circuit maturation? So that, that's really important data to support that there is an effect, even without a randomized trial. And during that, we um, working with Troy and the Foundation for Research Development, we um, they applied for and we got um, FDA um, breakthrough device designations. And the, so that's a big plus. And then Bashar and I worked on doing um, getting a randomized trial proposed and funded. And so what we have is a uh, faculty startup called Baby Strong um, that's uh, being conducted uh, in conjunction with the MUSC Foundation for Research Development. And together we got about $315,000 about to do a, a one-year randomized controlled trial in 20 babies. So the difference between this trial and all of the work we've done prior is the work we've done prior is open label, so there's no placebo control. Um, and what we did was we were investigating the parameters and the dosing and how many times you do it. And now we're at the point where we're looking at the true double-blind uh, effect. And so um, we have a year to do it, and we're starting enrollment as early as Monday, right? We can start as early as Monday. So you caught us at a good time because we're I'm, pro I'm leaving this recording and going to program the devices, right? And so that's, the, that's kind of where we're at. Um, and we have an amazing team, and everyone's really excited. 
That is so exciting. Well, let's talk about the future then. Um, dream, if you will, for a minute. Uh, you've got this year study starting right now. Where do you hope to be at the end of this year and then maybe in 10 years? We're enrolling 10 babies in each group, active treatment and no stimulation with um, paired with feeding. And we are getting MRIs then as well. So I hope that this data in a randomized fashion is going to show the similar effects to what we showed comparing the babies to themselves before feeding. That the stimulation does actually improve the neuroplasticity, which we, we want for mechanism, but also the effect that they go home. We got 74% of all the babies enrolled in that prior trial to full feeds. If we have that same effect size going with this same group, same inclusion criteria, they've got to be um, term, basically term, and they've got to have been trying for several weeks, um, and they've got to be in G-tube discussions. So it's the same exact criteria. We may be able to show effect with that small number of babies, because the effect size would be huge. If not, we're going to go forward with the phase two trial specifically, and somewhere between those two, we're going to go for FDA approval of the device. Every time in, you're in a startup development, it's always a startup and it's always new. So we're still constantly refining, trying to get that last product that then will go to the FDA to get approval for. Uh, because at that point, it's, you know, all hands on deck and, and we're running. So short term, we're optimizing going to, to larger clinical trials. Um, long, long term, I think we're, we're confidentially talking to several different groups who are strategic partners, who we're looking to bring on board to start growing this into a pretty large medical device company, which is where where we see this going. We want Baby Strong in every hospital in the United States, and there's a clear, not only a clear need for it uh, on a on a care level, but there's a, a financial need as well. It's really expensive to keep a baby in the neonatal unit for two months. It's really burdensome to the family who has to travel and be there every day. It's really expensive to get a surgery. It's really expensive to take that port out afterwards. And so not only is there a clear financial benefit for the payer, but there's a clear clinical benefit for the baby. So there is no reason why this won't be in every uh, hospital in the United States and ultimately in the world. So this is a really groundbreaking technology, which we plan to see from the early days where we're hand cutting electrodes to the days where we hope to deliver the first system to the first hospital and train the, the team on how to use it. So we're excited. The potential impact of this, I think, is underscored by the fact that you did get a breakthrough designation by the FDA. They don't just hand those out to anybody, you know, and so the fact that you were able to achieve one, I think, really speaks to the potential impact that you have here and uh, the fact that the field really does want a lot of data. Um, you know, I think we're really fortunate that you guys are at an academic medical center where you understand the value of supporting, you know, product development with really robust research. And I think it's kind of the beauty of, of being able to do something like this at an institution like this, where the, the data and the research go hand in hand with the, with the product development, um, where you would, wouldn't necessarily have that if it was starting. And we else. have such strong collaborations at MUSC. I'm, I'm constantly amazed. I talked to some colleagues at Harvard where they, they just don't collaborate like this. Everybody's passionate about babies, so we've had so much help. It's been really um, wonderful to work with the team. So we've got passion, we've got collaboration, and of course innovation, and you guys are doing some amazing things here. And I just want to say thank you for being a part of the podcast today. This is good stuff. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.